0: Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws in American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors.
1: The NWF Outdoors podcast is brought to you by Hunt to Eat, an inclusive hunting apparel company with a focus on community, real food, and conservation. Check out Hunt to Eat's NWF line, wild game recipes, and hunting and fishing designs at hunttoeat.com and enter the code WILDLIFE10 to get 10% off your order.
0: Welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast everybody. This is your host Aaron Kindle. I am without my co-host today Drew Youngdike. He is otherwise disposed today, but I am happy to welcome three different guests today. Uh, today we have Roman Dial with us, and he is a professor in Alaska. We have Paul Ford, who is a doctor in Alaska, and Tom, Tom, tell me how you say your last name. I'm afraid I'll butcher it. No, it's Tom um, Lohise. Tom Loheis and, and I'll give you their bios in a second, but how's everybody doing today?
1: Doing well. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, do Good, great. Here. Good Thank morning, you. Aaron.
2: Good morning, Paul. Roland.
0: Good. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, the, the reason we're here in a lot of ways is we were connected by a mutual friend, uh, to talk about sheep hunting in Alaska, largely, and and a lot of the ancillary issues around that, you know, the logistics and how you get there and what's happening with sheep in Alaska and so on. So, I'm really excited. Uh, you know, I keep feeling like I'm luckier and luckier all the time with these podcasts. We keep getting really interesting guests. We keep getting you know inquiries about really awesome issues, and this one, luckily, just kind of landed on our lap, and we were able to make it happen really quickly. So. Thank you all for joining, and uh, I'll say one of the thing, uh, as, as our listeners know, I'm here in Colorado. We have about six or 700,000 acres of wildfire burning in our state right now because of incredible winds. While I don't have any wildfire right next to me here, luckily, uh, we do have a lot of high winds. So I'm going to ask you to forgive me if you hear wind noise. Uh, but, we'll, but we'll get going here. Let's just, uh, I'm going to give quick bios and then we'll talk about what we've been doing outside here. So first we'll go with Paul. Paul grew up in Eagle River, Alaska and currently lives in Girdwood, Alaska. He is a doctor at the hospital and emergency room in the Arctic community of Kotzebue. Is that is that correct, Paul? Kotzebue. 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 Yeah. And, uh, and he's also worked for the past nine winters as a full-time heli ski guide in the Kujak, Kugach mountains. Is that correct too? Kugach. Uh, Kugach. I'm going to have trouble with a lot of Alaska <laughs> pronunciations I think today, but we'll keep going. Um, spent his life chasing deep snow and, and whitewater kayaking in the summer and, and got into traditional bow hunting and, uh, took his first big game animal when he was 12 years old. A moose, which is incredible. My my son down here in Colorado is always talking about when we'll ever be able to get a chance to get a moose because you need about twenty points. We've got him started; he's got three or four. He's fifteen, so maybe one day. Uh, and he and he also says Paul says that uh, his favorite pastime is spending as much time as possible with his wife Erin and his uh, son Wren. So thanks for being here, Paul. Thank you. And then we have Roman Dial. He's a professor of mathematics and biology at Alaska Pacific University. He's been exploring the Alaskan wilderness for the past 40 years or so. And he's an author. He's written two books. One is called Pack Rafting, an Introduction and How to Guide, and another called The Adventurer's Son. Welcome, Roman. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Aaron. And then last, we're lucky to have Tom if keep, I keep butchering that, Tom. I no apologize. Worries. He's a sheep research biologist for Alaska Fish and Game. He grew up, like me, in Wyoming, in western Wyoming, chasing elk and mule deer. And uh, that's the reasons he became a biologist. He's got a master's degree and Ph.D. from University of Wyoming. Go Pokes. Uh, his, he has a research background in uh, physiology, nutrition, and metabolism, Uh, in wildlife biology. And he's worked on doll sheep since 2008, and has also done some work on moose, black bears, and and several other species. So welcome to you as well, Tom. Thanks, sir. Let's just kick it off here. Um, What have you all been doing outside? Let's start with Paul. What have you been doing? Our Our tradition is to talk just for a few seconds about what in the heck we've been doing outside since that's really what brings us all here.
3: Uh, October is always a little bit of a tough month, but I've been uh, biking, mountain biking, whitewater kayaking a little bit. And uh, yesterday, I was out grouse hunting and uh, heading out deer hunting here soon.
0: Sounds great, Tom. You want to you want to jump in next?
3: Yeah, like Paul said, October is a little
2: bit a little bit difficult. Most of our hunting seasons are closed, so I'll reflect on what happened uh, previous to that. And I was fortunate enough to to go on three separate sheep hunts this year, one with my 13 year old son, um, and then two with uh, two real good friends and help them both take their first sheep. Uh, It was a a real, real neat experience to be involved with And I ended up spending most of August and September just outside
1: living out of a backpack.
0: That's fantastic. I'm sure we can get into those a little bit more. Roman, how about you? What have you been up to?
1: You know, it, it's uh, I'm teaching pretty much full time. I feel like I'm just sitting on my butt, zooming all day, but I'm lucky if I get my dog out for a walk. Um, but in September, I went on a moose hunt and a caribou hunt, and then I spent a lot of time in the Brooks Range uh, hunting for white spruce trees that shouldn't be where they were.
0: <laughs> wow, maybe we can talk about that as well. Well, awesome. You guys obviously spend a lot of time outside our listeners. know We actually just reported a pod recorded a podcast just yesterday. So it's going to be very similar to me. I've been out elk hunting a little this year and got a friend who'd never hunted before, uh, who helped him get a, a cow the other week and then and leaving after this to take my son to, out to get his elk this year, hopefully. And we got a big snowstorm coming in. So timing is good. Perfect. Well, let's just let's just jump in here. Um, is it fair for me to say that wild sheep is what connects the three of you? I mean, uh, from hunting and and researching and 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 you know somehow you all found one another. Maybe just talk us through that a little bit. Who, whoever wants to take that one.
3: Uh, so I think more mostly it's love of wild places, including hunting. Like I, I know Roman from some pack rafting adventures in the whitewater community. And, uh, and I bet Tom, I think for the first time regarding sheep hunting, I think he gave me some advice on a tag my wife had drawn and we uh, got along real well and he was, uh, had some fascinating things to say about um, what some of the things we're going to talk about today regarding climate change and wild sheep and especially in the Chugach close to home.
2: Excellent. What, what do you all want to add to that, Tom and Roman? Well, Roman, I think Roman's kind of the the gel that that holds this all together. I had started off doing sheep research in the Chugach in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and and had come up with some real interesting information, which we can talk about in a little bit. Uh, the the long story short is that we found real skinny sheep. Um, I was looking at the causes for that. Roman approached me at a scientific meeting and just said, hey, uh, some of the work I've been doing, uh, I don't want to steal his thunder here, but uh, some of the work I've been doing suggests that maybe we're seeing alpine tundra converted into other habitats. Do you think that could be related? And everything everything just sort of took off from there. Uh, We ended up sharing a graduate student, kicking ideas back and forth and and alaska is, is unique because it's such a small community you you're always connected to lots of other people in, in different ways that you discover after you start speaking with them, so mutual friends and mutual adventures and shared uh shared stories and and uh, and that sort of thing
1: yeah, and the last time I saw um Paul you know I think it was the last time we saw each other it was in Kotzebue, and I was traveling. Um, I guess I was leaving Kotzebue, and Kotzebue is up in the far northwest part of the state, like right on the Chukchi Sea, up north above the Arctic Circle, and it's at the end of the Brooks Range, and I was in the Brooks Range um, looking for spruce trees, and he was there doing his his doctor, his emergency room work, and I was all excited about some of the things that I'd been seeing there, and, and I knew Paul from, like he said, pack rafting trips, and he's just a super smart guy who's fun to talk to and and really a good conversationalist. So I was excited to share with him some of the things I just discovered and he was enthusiastic to hear about them.
0: <laughs> Great. Well, you know, Alaska holds such a kind of a romanticized place in, in most people's mind. I think those of us who haven't spent much time there or, you know, just think about wild places and wild critters really love to think about Alaska and, you know, the last frontier as they say. But you know, you three obviously have a lot of experience there. And I, I, I hope what we can do today is just talk a little bit about Alaska and what's happening there and and what, you know, what it's like for sportsmen and women that are up there and, and what are they observing and maybe wrap that around this, some of the sheep hunts you've done. And, and I know Paul, you wanted to talk a little bit about one of your hunts uh, recently and, and the three of you have been connected through hunting. So why don't we just kick it off a little bit with uh you know, kind of the things we're seeing in Alaska as they relate to sheep and and we'll go from there. You want to fire it off, Roman?
1: Sure. Yeah, I'll (laughs) I'll go. Uh, You know, Paul, I think I know I'm older than Paul. He's a young guy. And and I was just trying to decide if I'd been in Alaska longer than Paul had been. (laughs) But um, how old are you, Paul? Forty-one. Forty-one. So, yep, almost. I've been. I can say I've been in the Alaska outdoors longer than Paul has, even though he was sort of born and raised here. And um, and I'm sixty. And uh, and I, you know, moved to Alaska because I, I, you know, I'd come up here as a kid and I love Alaska. It's just if if you're an outdoors person, it's the most fantastic place in the world. And um, and so I started, you know, kicking around the wilderness forty years ago. And uh, and I went to graduate school uh, about. 30 years ago, and I heard this idea of climate change, and people would ask me about it. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think it's really happening. You know, I don't, maybe it is, you know, the glaciers are receding, but it hadn't really kicked into full swing. And then just in the last, you know, 20 or 30 years now, you can't, you can't miss it. It's just such a significant effect. And it affects everything. You know, if you live up here in the farther north you go, the more it affects.
2: And in, and that's, that leads very nicely into why I'm, why I'm here doing what I'm doing for the Department of Fish and Game. I was hired to work on moose with the department in 2002, moved to Alaska from Wyoming after graduate school. And then in 2008, the department determined that there was a need to hire a sheep research biologist have a background in mountain travel and and, uh, climbing. And that combined with uh, a completely new species that had had very little work done on it was super exciting. But to put it into context, we've, uh, we've seen population declines in sheep between 20 and 40, almost 50% in some mountain ranges uh, between the late 1990s and then the early 2000s. So when I came on the scene as a researcher, I was tasked with kind of trying to get a, a better handle on what are the factors driving sheep populations across South Central Alaska. Excellent.
0: Excellent. And- let's talk a little bit more about that meaning that you know what what are the factors what you talk about sheep decline and and kind of walk us through that a little bit and then secondly let's illuminate exactly what species of sheep we're talking about (laughs) there's several um, and I think you mean doll up there uh, but, but just for our listeners clarify for me
2: yeah, you bet. It is it is doll's sheep. It's uh, one of two species of thin horn sheep in North America. The other one, of course, is the stones. Um, they're native to northern British Columbia, but they're uh, they're white sheep and they're not uh, they're they're a real different animal than bighorns that some of the, the hunters and, and outdoor enthusiasts in the lower 48 might encounter. I've been privileged to catch and handle a few bighorn sheep with a couple of agencies, Wyoming Game and Fish. And, uh, they're very, very different from dolls. Dolls are, are slender and much more, uh, um, <clears throat> they're much lighter boned. You know, they're a, a, an adult ram here will be 180 to 225 pounds and maybe half again that much in, in bighorn herds.
0: Wow. So, and then, you know, I know Paul, we wanted to touch on your hunt and I'd like to kind of weave in, you know, as a hunter. And as someone who gets out there on the landscape and, and goes after these critters, talk about what, what you're experiencing as, as far as it relates to what Tom talked about there, a little, you know, population declines. Does that make it more difficult to get a tag? You know, walk through what it's like if you're a guy trying to get a, a doll sheep tag and, and and what the factors are that weigh into that.
3: Like, like Roman said, I mean, I'm um, pretty young in, in the grand picture and I don't, I wasn't around like in the golden era of sheep hunting, I don't think, but um, I shot my first, uh, my first doll Ram when I was, I think 14. Um, I lived in Eagle river and I drew a tag for, um, up the Valley from my parents' house, just literally like 10 miles away. And, uh, uh, you know, there were, there were a lot, I mean, we'd see sheep behind the house constantly back then. And, uh, and, uh, there were a lot of sheep in the hunting area. I mean, enough sheep that a a 14 year old, my 12 year old brother and our like 20 year old friend (laughs) who didn't really know what we were doing. My dad was out of town. We're able to like shoot a pretty nice old ram. Um, I actually had my bow with me too, but didn't, didn't get to use it. But, um, uh, just, just like anecdotally, there's seems like a lot fewer sheep around that area, um, than there used to be. And I think the, um, Tom could speak to this better, but I think the availability of, um, even the lottery tags has decreased quite a bit for the the chugach. Like there used to be, I think. I think. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, Tom, but I think there used to be a lot more tags available for the chugach, like back in the in the '90s and early 2000s, um, which is what I'm talking about.
2: Yeah, that's correct, Paul. And as a matter of fact, we can look at some specific population numbers too. That that game management unit real close to Anchorage um, was. Hovering at a stable population of about 900 to 1100 sheep through the 1970s and 1980s, and then boomed and hit 22 to 2400, uh, probably about that time you were talking about, early to you know uh, early 2000s, and has since dropped back down. uh, Hit a hit a bottom of around 900 in 2009, 2010, and has since come back off the bottom a little bit. We're sitting pretty stable 1300 1400 sheep in this in this unit but uh we're certainly down off the off the peak
3: yeah yeah. so Aaron to continue that conversation about availability of hunting so um what Tom and I are talking about is the Chugach range which is um close to anchorage and, uh, and then there's, and so for the most part, that area is, uh, accessed for hunting via a lottery where you, you put in your name basically in uh, December and you get a drawing and that's the opportunities to hunt in the Chugach. Um, and some of those are, we're talking like single digit percentage, like low single digits or even lower. So some of them are kind of like, if you're lucky once in a lifetime draws. Um, and then, uh, And then a lot of the other parts of the state, like the Wrangles and the Talkeetnas and the Alaska Range and the Brooks Range, um, and to lesser degree, the Kenai Mountains have um, general harvest tags. So if you're an Alaskan resident, you can just get an over-the-counter tag and, uh, and go hunting sheep every year and that's for a, a legal ram which is a mature sheep which is um eight years old, or older or has the horns that make a full curl um, and so that's that's kind of the the big picture overlay of sheep hunting opportunities in the state
0: mm, that's interesting and, and so what does doll sheep taste like? I guess just a real simple question. I've never had doll sheep.
3: Talk about how good it is. What do you do? How do you cook it? What do you what do with it? Do? Oh man, I'll go first. I'm sure Tom has some, some ideas and Roman too. Um, it's, I I mean, it probably, we we probably all are a little biased because we worked hard to get it. So it tastes maybe a little better, but I think it's the best eating uh, meat I've ever had in my life. Um, it is, it has very little game flavor of any kind. It's typically quite tender, even when you're dealing with like an 11 or older year old Ram. And, uh, just, it's just awesome. I think like Again, there's some cognitive bias there based on the experience, but like sheep ribs cooked over an open fire with a little salt and pepper and garlic is just like the finest meal a person could ever eat.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I grew up on I grew up eating elk and and uh, you know a, a cow elk is pretty much. Top of my top of my scale, uh, nice nice September October cow is about the top of top of the heap as far as game meat gets. But I'll, I put sheep right up there with it.
1: Yeah, my my favorite's bison. I like buffalo most, you know. And plus, it's big. It's it's bigger than a moose, and it tastes better than an elk. An elk's close second. And I poo poo sheep because it's too much work. But as far as um like because it's a lot of work, it makes it taste better. You know, not completely true because goat also takes a lot of work, but doesn't taste as good as sheep, in my opinion. And, you know, my, I, I haven't eaten nearly as much gay meat as these guys, but I kind of think of, you know, dark, uh, sheep meat is a little bit darker than than goat meat. Goat meat seems to be a little bit lighter in color. But yeah, sheep meat is basically the best, but it's just sort of like a treat. It's like a chocolate. You know, it's not like a big meal. You know, you don't get to eat. You you could eat all your sheep up in a couple of weeks, I suspect, if you're like a big meat eater. So you kind of save it for a treat.
3: Agree with that. I, sh- I, w- I just want to point out that Roman, who's talking about how sheep is a lot of effort, is probably the person who's covered more ground on foot in Alaska <laughs> than almost any person alive, <laughs> including someone <laughs> of the most rugged terrain out there. Um, I think he's probably giving sheep hunters a little too much credit.
0: <laughs> well, that's maybe a good segue. Roman is is to talk about the nexus of, of you in this work. You know. A professor of mathematics and and biology, like, where do you come in here? Where on the sheep picture?
1: Well, um, you know my I, my work was uh, that drew me to Tom was that um, you know I'd heard that sheep were were disappearing uh, in the game management unit next to Anchorage. And and then I've been studying uh, shrubs, you know, bushes like alders and willows, uh, looking at repeat photography. I had a grad student who was looking at that and and they were moving uphill, like remarkably fast. You know, like, I mean, if I gave you the number, you wouldn't believe me. I don't, it's hard for me to even say it in public, but like three feet a year, which is like almost unbelievable that the shrubs would be moving uphill. And, you know, and I've been hiking around Alaska for a long time. And when I would when I would complain to the young, younger folk that I thought that the shrubs were getting thicker, they would just tell me I was getting older, you know, like, oh, Roman, you're just getting softer. The shrubs aren't really getting any worse. The bushes aren't any worse. But sure enough, when I looked at the, this aerial photography, they were getting thicker. And I, I was drawn to, um, I don't know how I found, I guess I heard in the paper because Tom, I think what happened is Tom was, would talk to people, um, the public about sheep because sheep are really the coolest. I mean, I'd, I'd say they're pretty much the coolest thing you can hunt in the state. You know, like a bison would be cooler, but they're so hard to get a hold of. And sheep has the whole package. You know, it's a big wilderness experience. It's a tough hunt. The meat tastes great. You know, it's a real challenge. It's at the hardest time of the year in the Alaska range. You often have to fly in to go sheep hunting. And if you don't fly in and you're hiking in, then you're a super badass. So, um, So sheep is like at the top of the pile. So everybody, even if you're not a sheep hunter, you're listening to sheep hunters talk about sheep hunting. And then everybody's like, where are the sheep going? And so, you know, that kind of led me to hear I heard something that Tom had said that he, you know, had heard something that I had said about the shrubs. So I had to talk to Tom and say, you know, Tom, the shrubs are moving and uh, maybe it's affecting the sheep. And uh, and and so we got together, and we had uh, a a graduate student we just finished up, um, who uh, who found that um, you know when he when he put GPS collars on these sheep, that the habitat that they were hanging out in was it was a habitat that was threatened by changing climate and and changing climate in two ways. One, believe it or not, it's, it is getting warmer in Alaska, but it's also getting snowier in the winter. Like we have really dry winters now, um, you know, at the low elevations, it's cause it's kind of warm, but at the upper elevations, the snow is getting deeper. At least that's what, you know, my skiing friends tell me. And I also have heard it from some scientists or read the papers where they went up to one of the highest mountains in Alaska and they drilled down at 14,000 feet through the, the glacier snow at the top of the mountain. And they found that the snow is getting deeper up high. And so deep snow is not very favorable to sheep. I'll let Tom talk more about that. Um, so I think that that climate change, both between warming and getting snowier, is, is affecting the sheep.
2: Absolutely. You know, Roman, that's a really good point. And sheep are extremely well adapted. I mean, they've they've lived in dry, windy, cold climates for 40,000 years. And they're, they're supremely adapted to, to dealing with cold. They're really well insulated. And, and uh, <clears throat> you know, they can forage on just little bits and pieces of grass coming up through the up through the snowpack, but what they can't deal with is deep, heavy, wet snow and they can crater, they can dig through the snow to forage. But, uh, when that snow becomes heavy, wet and dense, they're unable to, uh, to dig through it. So that challenges them in one way. And then what you pointed out with shrub and tree line advancing up into the tundra, you're actually seeing Alpine tundra, sheep, you know, textbook sheep habitat, converted, they're, they're grazers, right? Um, the grasses and sedges are a primary food item. So when you see alders and willow move up into tundra meadow, you lose, you're essentially losing sedges and grass and, and, uh, some of the, the leafy green stuff that they prefer. So you're seeing a, a difficulty in winter habitat accessing food. You're seeing a lack of summer habitat.
0: Hmm. That's, that's pretty fascinating. Uh, so, you know, it sounds like these changes are happening pretty fast in a lot of ways. I mean, if you're talking about three feet a year movement on, on shrubs and alders and so on and and other conversion, I mean, what was it like? What what did the sheep do about that? Do they, they simply, you know, struggle, uh, you know, a lot of species, you know, I know here in Colorado, some of the things like, you know, are moving up higher because there's still a little bit more to access or, or other things like that. What are the adaptations that the sheep are trying to do to, to, to survive this, these changes?
2: Well, so, here we're not seeing the, the altitude. We see an altitudinal movement just during the course of the year. They tend to move up and down to follow, uh, to follow green up, but they can only go so high. Um, you know, above, above tundra, you don't have much other than ice and rock. So we're not seeing that rock, that rock doesn't magically become tundra when the alders grow into the the lower end of the tundra. So their habitat is shrinking. And what we see, uh, you know, my data in the Chugach shows that pregnancy rates are lower than you might expect. And animals are skinnier than you might expect, uh, to put some numbers to it, uh, what you usually see is 85 to 90 percent, 95, 85 to 95 percent of the adult females in an ungulate population—elk, moose, deer, sheep—will be pregnant. And uh, <clears throat> some of the the Chugach data we've looked at shows that pregnancy rates in most years are in that range. But every couple of years, you have an excursion down into the low double digits. I've documented pregnancy rates as low as 18 and 21 percent in a couple of years in the Chugach. So I think to to answer your question, what they're doing is they're responding by having fewer offspring.
0: wow that's that's interesting. I think you know it's it's always troublesome for for us who who appreciate wildlife so much to hear about species having trouble is there is there something that's being done is it are our researchers or or the agencies are they doing things to address these issues with sheep or just researching it right now or tell me kind of about that that trajectory of of kind of knowing it and then addressing it.
2: Well, we're still very much in the knowing it stage and, and explaining what's going on, I think is the, the first step, but that's a great question. And I get asked that a lot. It's like, what, what do we do? Um, and at this point, you know, I think we, we adapt to a, a lower population level and we, we know that there won't be as many animals on the landscape. Um, and then as far as, as far as long-term in the future, I don't have a, I don't have a good answer to that. You know, it's, it's, It appears that population numbers have stabilized they're not in free fall it's important to communicate that to folks but we're certainly um existing at a a lower level than we
1: experienced
2: 20 30 years ago
1: well one thing i'd like to mention just as you know i'm not a a sheep expert but in the little bit of reading and, and we uh we tom and i shared this uh grad student named kyle and so i kind of had to keep up with kyle Um, and kyle is this young guy from wisconsin who moved to alaska and he jumps out of helicopters wearing cowboy boots and a big hat and wrestles sheep to the ground and puts gps collars on them and uh and he's an expert hunter too and uh and he's taught me a lot about sheep behavior, for example. And so um, the, the ewes, a, a ewe needs to stay near the cliffs so she can run up, run up the hill, run up the mountain cliff to get her her lamb to safety away from like wolves and bears and eagles and such. And um, so that forces her to overgraze and all the ewes to overgraze the little bit of pasture that's good right at the base of the cliffs. And then it's already overgrazed. And then the shrubs are moving in. And the problem with sheep is they don't do anything unless they're following somebody else. And and they're resistant. They're really resistant to moving. I think Tom pointed out in some time that a lot of um, sheep die in avalanches and mountain terrain is dangerous. And so sheep, tend to stay in low in local areas that they know are safe and they're really not going to leave that area until things are really bad they got to be like in thick brush and all the food's got to be gone and all the snow has to be burying all their winter range before they leave and and so their population's going to get pretty low before the big ram leads them away and i you know i'm simplifying it you know this is just sort of like a layman's version of of sheep behavior and ecology um, but I would say, and I'm not a sheep biologist and I'm not a sheep manager, but if we were able to to identify good sheep habitat, kind of like um, where they could be, but they haven't got to yet, then we could move them there. Just like, you know, um, we moved animals around the state just recently, we moved wood bison or wood buffalo, um, an animal from, you know. Canada that used to live in Alaska and we moved it out to the lower Yukon and they're doing pretty well. I think they're wandering around. So if we wanted to, I feel, don't you think Tom, we could move sheep to a better habitat if we could define it or is that not something we'd want to do?
2: Possibly that's, that's sort of a, there's a, there's a lot of layers to that conversation and the big, the big hiccup right now is disease, which is a, uh, is a concern uh, disease transmission, either across or, or within sheep ranges so we're we're hesitant to use that as an option but maybe a different way to look at it would be to see if there's areas within the same mountain range where the same that that were historically used that aren't currently being uh, aren't currently being utilized uh, to, uh
0: can you dive into that a little bit more tom uh you know national wildlife federation where i work we have a a wildlife conflict resolution program and a lot of the work we do in that is to try and stop or or really reduce the uh, interaction of domestic and wild bighorns domestic sheep and wild bighorns because of that disease transmission the pneumonia you know that's almost nearly all the time fatal when it happens um, and and we've done a bunch of work re- retiring uh, domestic sheep grazing allotments in really key areas. Talk about that nexus up there. Is that a similar issue, or what are the diseases they're looking at that seeing? It's before?
2: absolutely a similar issue, Aaron. Um, we're we're concerned. Um, primarily with a bacteria called mycoplasma ova pneumonia. Um, We have done a little bit as an, as an agency, we've done a little bit of preliminary work and have identified that mycoplasma ova pneumonia is present in sheep and caribou and moose in the state in some limited areas. But at this point, it appears that it's, uh, it's been a, uh, it's been in the population for some time and was most likely introduced um, at one point and has, There Maybe it's best to to describe it this way. There are a number of strains of this bacteria. Some are more pathogenic. Some are more virulent than others, um, more dangerous. And the strain that we appear to have in Alaska doesn't appear to be particularly bad. But we want to be careful that we don't have additional strains introduced. So we're working hard. Um, Alaska Wild Sheep Foundation is actually taking the lead on that and uh, working with uh, a lot of non-governmental, of other NGOs and uh, and private individuals to to work to reduce the possibilities of of transmission. But anytime you anytime you move animals from from one area to another, you always have that risk of of what you're taking with you.
3: Hey, Tom, I think you mentioned to me one time that that strain of Mycoplasma ovi in Alaska, you think has probably been here for like well, pretty long time, like well beyond like the current uh, era of concern in the rest of the country.
2: I think so. Well, I think you know it's 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 hard to. Let me go back to the let me go back to the data. Let me go back to the evidence, Paul. Um, it appears that the same strain is present in sheep and in caribou and possibly in moose in several different mountain ranges in the state. And that piece of evidence suggests that it was introduced, um, has spread across several different mountain ranges and herds. So we're not seeing different types of, we're not seeing different strains of this bacteria. We're seeing one strain in several different places. So that, that suggests that it's been around for enough time to spread, but I don't know that we have the, Ability to say based on the, the dispersion, you know, it disperses at this particular rate of year, and we can't really put a time frame on it. But I can tell you that the folks that work on it much more in depth than I do in the lower 48 uh, have, have concluded that it's most likely not a, not a uh, disease that's endemic to wild sheep. It's, it's been introduced from domestic stock over, over time. Um, the other real big takeaway there is that where you see it introduced in, into wild sheep herds, it's a problem because introducing one strain doesn't confer immunity to other strains. So you can have multiple introductions and the first strain that's introduced might not be particularly bad, but subsequent, uh, releases or introductions can be, can be much, much more dangerous. And because Alaska's sheep ranges are so big, you know, the, the Chugach stretch 300 miles east to west. Um, it's, it's easy to see where that could be a concern, where you have transmission across a long geographic distance, where in lower 48, sheep herds are a little bit more constrained and um, bounded by development and, uh, and don't have that uh, potential to spread as widely as quickly.
0: And that may be a good time for a plug. We, we sat down with uh, Gray Thornton, uh, president of Wild Sheep Foundation, not too long ago on our podcast and talked about some of those disease transmission er, uh, issues. Uh, so go check that one out. Paul, you recently went on a sheep hunt. Can you walk us through what, you know, a lot of people don't know what it's like to hunt a doll sheep. Can you just walk us through, you know, getting the tag, getting out there? Do you need to take a float plane? What kind of terrain are you in? You know, I assume you're using, you know, high caliber rifle, like, like most things or bows, you know, just, just walk us through what your hunt was like and, and bring us there if you would.
3: Oh, um, wow. Yeah, sheep hunting is, you know, obviously it's the sheep populations, as we've talked about, are in some of the more hard to get to parts of the state. And, uh, you know, in my opinion, and i will speak only for myself, the hardest part about sheep hunting by far is just figuring out where there's a legal ram. And uh, when, once you know where there's a legal ram, then it's just a matter of like figuring out how to get close to them. Um, in, in my case, I do all my hunting with a, a, basically a simple longbow. And so my effective range is like, 25 yards max, so that creates some extra challenges there when it comes to sheep hunting. I think that uh, the range that I'm effective is is like sheep are pretty pretty wary of <laughs> of uh, foreign animals within that distance, and so um, they're 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 pretty good at catching you and, and getting away when you're trying to get close to them. Um, so you know you can get you can access sheep country up here uh, via airplane. You can there's places you can go in on foot. There's places you can go in. People go in on ATVs, um, and uh, uh, you know like I said before, there's a lot of different mountain ranges. Um, Tom's also spent a lot of his life sheep hunting in, in different parts of the state, and. Uh, uh, once you find them, you know, that the trick for me is to figure out, you know, a particular animal that I want to, that I want to pursue. Um, uh, sometimes that takes, you know, weeks or day, you know, matter of days to find. And then, uh, like this year I found a ram, uh, that was an old mature ram, um, found him on, I think the fifth or sixth day of walking around and I'd covered quite a bit of ground at that point. I was hunting by myself and I always keep my camp on my back. So wherever I end up each day, wherever I like, you know, end up each day is where I sleep. I sleep in a different place almost every night. And, uh, uh, I found him on, I think day five or six and then I, the next day I got within about 40 yards of him but couldn't seal the deal, um, got, got, was seen by a Ram and his group. Um, And, uh, and then I followed them into their, uh, into some kind of escape terrain, some high cliffs, camped as close as I could without being seen, um, and kind of followed their movements the next day and, uh, uh, without getting into the whole, whole long thing of it was able to, um, kind of follow them around until he ended up in a place that seemed conducive to a stock with, with, uh, my type of equipment and, uh, was able over long time, long, slow stock, like, like literally counting 60 seconds between steps <laughs> descending from above. Um, I was able to get 15 yards from him and, um, uh, pass an arrow, uh, through his chest and he, uh, fell down 30 yards later. And and then the the hardest part the hard work starts when you try to get that, uh, animal back to your starting point. But luckily I had my whole camp with me. So I basically just camped where he fell. I got him, got him, uh, uh, all in game bags and cooling by, uh, by dark. And next morning started working them back to, back to, uh, my pickup. So, yep. Yeah, was...
0: You say cooling too. What, I mean, most people think you're out there hunting sheep in Alaska. I mean, I, I'm not most people, I'm, I'm just showing my own ignorance. You're out there, you're out there sheep hunting in Alaska. I'm not thinking cooling is probably going to be a huge issue to talk, talk about that a little.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you, so Sheep season typically starts, uh, August 10th for the general season hunt in Alaska. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of parts of the state that are still pretty darn warm that time of year. And, uh, meat spoilage is a real issue for sure. Even at high elevation and people have all kinds of tricks of, you know, of ways to cool their meat down. Um, when I killed that ram this year, it was getting down into the, I actually had one night, a couple nights before that, where my water actually froze. Um, but, uh. It was getting into the you know, mid-40s at night at the coldest or at the warmest, I mean. So I was able to, I just laid it out on rocks and allowed the meat to cool um, because I knew the next day when the sun came out, it would get pretty hot. And I was, as we all know, all of us hunt here, the, once once the animal's down, the clock's ticking on getting it, uh, getting it responsibly back to a place you can cool it and process it. And so... Uh, i was a little stressed about that i actually did at the um at one point submerge it in waterproof bags in the in the water to kind of cool it down a little bit in a creek but uh but yeah that's that's kind of the process
0: And do you have to worry about bears and other things coming in in those in that area when you're camping right next
3: to yeah your yeah i mean i think in theory you do um you have to be I mean, I, and a lot of people have had bad experiences. Um, I've been pretty fortunate. Um, uh, I think you have to be fairly unlucky uh, to have a bear come up and get your meat. But I'm sure there's lots of people out there with scary experiences. Um, but I, I are you uh, knocking I would, on wood
0: when you say that? <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm not very superstitious, but uh, I am going out deer hunting on Kodiak by myself for two weeks in a, in a week. So <laughs> see what happens. <laughs>
0: that's that's pretty fascinating stuff and you know i think one of the things we wanted to get to is you know we're we're doing a lot of exploration about climate change and how it's affecting hunters and anglers we've got a series that we're going to kick off here soon you know showcase people from around the country and and tell their stories about what they're seeing and how things are changing and you know in some cases they're pretty dramatic and i know up north the, the climate change issues are, are really dramatic in, in a lot of cases. And I wonder if, if any of you can kind of talk about that and how are, are those issues, I mean, we've, we've touched on it a little but those issues are, are seeming to either compound or you know, exacerbate some of the things we're seeing with sheep. Can you talk through a little bit about what you're seeing in Alaska in general and you know, how, how wild animals are responding and habitat? And any one of you can take that one (laughs) everybody's looking at each other going who's on this one
1: Uh, well i'll start with it just kind of the big picture um you know if the whole if the world assume the world's warming up let the whole world warm up then um when it warms up here in the north it's gonna melt the snow earlier and it's gonna melt the glaciers and when you lose that snow the snow is what bounces the sun's rays back into the back into space and now that that snow has gone um, the ground can absorb the warmth you know in a lot of places when the glaciers retreat or melt back or the snow hasn't melted in a certain spot for a long time the ground is really dark and it absorbs even more and then that warms up faster. And then as it warms up faster, more snow melts. So there's almost like a positive feedback that's going on. And the same thing happens in the mountains, which is where the doll sheep live. And so, um, you know, where where it's warming up the fastest in the whole world really is in the, the Arctic mountains, the Northern mountains, because... Um, when the sea ice melts, the sea ice is another thing that melts, and it warms up a little bit. And then the sea ice is melting. And then the the ocean, instead of reflecting that light back into the sky, the ocean warms up, and then there's more humidity, and then that falls as more snow in the winter. And the sheep struggle with that deeper snow because it's warmer and the humid air holds more moisture, and then the snow is deeper in the winter, and so the sheep struggle, even the moose struggle. And then uh, with the warmth, the bushes get taller and the caribou struggle. And and just the last 10 years have seen like remarkable warmth. I mean, for those of us who live here, the summers, every summer is like the summer of the century. Every summer is like so much better than the summer before. Like I remember I lived in the interior of Alaska for about 10 or 11 years up in Fairbanks. And I would come to Anchorage and I would think, what a horrible place. It's just rainy here all the time. Why does anybody live in Anchorage? Meanwhile, all the people in Anchorage were wondering, why does everybody, anybody live in Fairbanks where it's so freaking cold? But um, now the summers in Anchorage are spectacular. I mean, it's like it's like living in California and there's no mosquitoes. So all this warmth has wiped out the mosquitoes, all this warmth, uh, the, the, the mosquitoes are gone. And then that. So it sounds like it's nice, but then you go out to go hunting caribou and the caribou aren't where they used to be. And you go out to hunt sheep and there aren't as many sheep as there used to be. So it's, it's, it's changing in, in really rapid ways.
2: You know, that's an interesting lead in Roman, you mentioned deeper snow and, and I'll have to set the stage here a little bit, but, uh, you guys remember, um, in 2012 and 2013, Alaska had two really bad winters, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna just leave that hang for a second. Paul mentioned at the beginning of our discussion that for a ram to be legal, that ram has to be eight years old or full curl, and if you're a sheep hunter or if you've looked at sheep, you know that their horns grow in a very characteristic pattern. Um, that first year you know the rams are born, Rams are born in May and they might put on an inch of horn that between May and November. The horns quit growing during the rut and stop growing through the uh, through the winter until there's more forage available at Greenup. Then the second year they grow a, a little bit longer chunk. Um, <clears throat> and in fact, the, then they grow in a, a real predictable pattern. So they put on their most length from two to three and they put on their most horn volume, typically from ages three to four, and then the segments decrease in length. They grow successively less every year. But um, one of the things that we've been seeing now is the the sheep that were born in 2010, 2011, um, were two and three years old in 2012 and 2013, a time when they would have been putting their greatest amount of horn growth on. We're actually seeing rams that are Three, four, five, six inches shorter in horn length than they would have been because of those two hard winters. Um, and they subsequently, you know, heavy, heavy winter snow, late spring snowpack persistence. The snow stayed on the landscape for a long time and they had two really rough, two really rough years. And you can actually see those years reflected in the horn growth. And that's a, a real, you know, uh, real in your face, real obvious kind of a short-term consequence to some of these changing weather patterns.
0: Oh, are you going to chime in? You're shaking your head. I didn't know if you wanted to, to add to that.
3: Oh, no, I'm just, I mean, most of my knowledge is most is anecdotal or just what I've read about things, but the, um, the heavy, the, the fluctuations in our winters as someone who, um, makes his living in the wintertime guiding skiing is, uh, and the changes in the vegetation i mean it's really notable and uh, the, the the company that i work for has an awesome photographic legacy of glacial photos <clears throat> terrain photos that've been taken from the air for the last 23 years now and just in that short period of time the the amount of usable ski terrain on the On the glaciers, um, because the glaciers are kind of falling apart, has changed remarkably uh, Some of the photos I can barely believe that they're that they 're real just from two decades ago and uh and then, as um both roman and tom have have mentioned several times the the changes in vegetation, particularly the alders growing taller, thicker, and higher elevations have um have significantly altered the the terrain map for us. I know that's not directly related to, to the sheep hunting question, but just just anecdotally and observationally, having spent my life here, it's uh, it's really remarkable.
2: Snowpack's interesting too, from a from a direct impact on on sheep standpoint. You know, um, we mentioned it a little bit during some of our preliminary discussions, but it's 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 always been interesting to me that avalanches play such a big role in, in shaping sheep populations. And when I started working on sheep in 2008, 2009, we had good information on the population. We, we had summertime surveys. Biologists would go out and fly and count the number of rams and ewes and lambs on the landscape, but we didn't know how we were getting there. You know, we'd see 100, 100 ewes on the landscape with, with 30 lambs, and, and uh, that was... we had 50 years of that kind of data but we didn't know the forces that were shaping that so when we started collaring sheep it was really interesting to me that avalanches were actually taking a bigger toll on sheep than predators were in the in my study areas in the chugach and that's a trend that's held what i really would love to know is how does that trend compare to what we had 30 40 years ago and as snow density has gotten greater and snow depth has gotten greater. Is that a new thing? Is that something else that's coming on? But we're, we're losing annually. We lose more sheep to avalanches than we do to wolves and coyotes and bears and wolverines. All those predators certainly have an effect on the, on the individual. We don't see a population level effect of predation. Um, We do in the Alaska range, we do in the brooks, you know, coyotes, wolverines, eagles, wolves all play a role in, in those areas, but in the Chugach, um, the, the predators don't have as big an effect as, uh, as, as the, the weather patterns, the weather factors.
1: That's I fascinating. Could, oh, go ahead, Ron. Yeah. I, w- I want to touch on those uh, avalanches too. Um, you know, I, I, don't spend as much time in the Chugach as I do in the Brooks Range, which is the northernmost mountain range in Alaska. And, uh, and up there, you know, the light changes so rapidly in the spring that they don't really get dry uh, avalanches, they get these slushy avalanches where the the whole snowpack kind of goes isothermic at once. And then it just kind of runs down like a big slush. And it's so wet that it'll run right up the other valley side and take out all the trees. And so when you have an avalanche, like, I mean, it moves giant boulders and the snowpack isn't that deep. That's the remarkable thing, but it's just so heavy and saturated that that would take out a whole population of sheep. And there's a lot of people who in the spring, um, not a lot, but there's friends of mine who hike around in the spring. And and one of the things they like to do is find where the Wolverine have dug uh, dead sheep, you know, out of avalanche cones where the sheep got caught by an avalanche and somehow the Wolverine can sniff it out. And then it just paws down and digs in and and then pulls the sheep out to eat and leaving oftentimes like a, a beautiful, you know, (laughs) full curl, head up on top because they don't want to eat that. But there's, um, you know, on the opposite side, like down in the, in the lowlands. And I, you know, I'm not a sheep hunter and I I probably shouldn't even be here, but um, I do hunt moose. And one of the places I got a moose, it was my secret honey spot for moose. Um, You know, I got a moose there and it swam out into the lake because I didn't get a good shot and it swam out into the lake and it died. And then I had to go out in the lake and pull it to shore. And that lake now is all dried up. That lake now is is gone and their moose just graze on grass at the bottom of that former lake bed. And that's common all over the place. So even though it's getting snowier and wetter up high, it's getting drier down low and these wetlands and lakes are all disappearing. So that's another pretty uh, obvious climate change effect down in the lowlands is the drying of wetlands and uh, the thawing of permafrost and the draining of ponds and lakes. Some ponds and lakes, they drain because the permafrost in the bottom melts out and then they just drain away. And others just are like on the Kenai Peninsula where there's not any permafrost really. It's just getting drier and uh, warmer. You know, the precipitation is actually staying the same, but it's getting warmer and they're just evaporating away. So there's a lot happening on the landscape.
0: Yeah, these are these are also interesting. It just it begs so many questions in my mind, and, and the I guess the interesting thing about it too is the the effects are so dynamic, right? Whether it's you know more rain in one area and it's drier someplace else, or it's too hot over here, or you get a slushy avalanche compared to a powdery avalanche, or you know all the different variables that that come along with that. And I know you know here in Colorado we're we're, we're seeing pretty squarely, and it's pretty well documented at this point two to three weeks later before snow persists on the landscape and two or three weeks earlier that it's melting. Um, and so you can imagine with places, you know, we're in the upper Colorado river basin. We support where the headwaters for the Colorado river, all that Southwestern country, what that means with that, that precipitation falling as, as, as rain in those times and not holding it and the different effects that has. And then that's just for people. And then you think about wildlife trying to adapt to that. I mean, that's only a 30, 30, 40 years, you know, that's not enough time for evolutionary change. That's not enough time for some of the other change you need to see. Um, talk a little bit about too, what else are we seeing with, you know, fish, Anadromous fish are, are a huge issue with this. I know fish that, you know, need a certain amount of water level to be able to get up to their spawning grounds, uh, other wildlife, you know, in the north, there's so many kind of iconic wildlife and, and fish and wildlife that, that people think about. And beyond sheep, what are the other wildlife factors that you're looking at along these lines?
1: Well, I hate to say it cuz I don't even can't tell one fish from another but Chinook salmon or king salmon is what we call them up here. They're the iconic animal of the river like a sheep. You know, like everybody wants to get a king. They taste the best. You know, they're the they're a big fatty salmon that's really big and and their numbers have declined so Far that you 're not even allowed to keep them anymore in most places, or you know you might used to be able to keep a couple or three or four now you can 't even you have to let them all go and um and i'm you know i 'm not a fish biologist, and i shouldn 't even you know go out on the limb to even speculate, but I think i 've heard some talk that the rivers are getting warmed up, and the chinooks aren 't doing so well with the warm with the warm water now, and i don 't really know if that 's what it is but um I do know some people have sort of talked about you know salmon not liking warm water. Tom, do you know anything about that or Paul?
2: You know a, a little bit. Um, I know some of my fisheries biologist colleagues were dealing with some some fish die-offs up on the Yukon River and and some of the Yukon tributaries. I can't I can't pull the numbers off the top of my head, but I know there were some fairly substantial die-offs and I know that king populations have declined to the point where some of the subsistence fisheries, uh, people living in villages along the, along the Yukon and the Cuscoquin rivers are, are not able to, to fish, to feed themselves and their families. And it's a, it's certainly an issue. I, I defer to a, a fisheries biologist on that. Maybe that's something Aaron could corral a couple of my colleagues into chatting about on a, on a future podcast. But it's yeah, certainly an issue both with chinooks, with kings, and and uh, with chums too, and other species of other species of Pacific salmon that are really, really vitally important as a food source.
0: You know, one thing about talking to to scientists is they never want to speak out of turn. I, you know, <laughs> but one of the things that we're doing a lot is is getting anecdotal stories from from hunters and anglers. I mean, enough people now are going you know, something just doesn't look right here or, you know, even five or 10 years ago, it just isn't like what it was. And, you know, everybody's a little hesitant. I think like, like we all are to say, no, that's climate change. You know, it's only been five or 10 years or whatever, but some of the stuff, you know, I, I, the, one of the guys I just talked to he was a hundred degrees during his hunting season. You know, he's like, it's never been a hundred degrees, never. And now I'm out there in the middle of the day and I can't, I got to go home, you know, cause it's too dang hot. This is down in New Mexico. Um, and, and just things like that, you know, that guy's been hunting there his entire life. He's 40 years old, you know, and he's never, ever experienced that. So, you know, I think why we're reluctant, I think it's also worth telling those stories because especially if you look into the future and you see that different people have all these stories and what, what the amalgam is of all those things over time, you're going to go, yeah, that corroborates a lot of what we're seeing scientifically. So I think it's important to tell those stories, even if you're not a fish biologist. If you, if you know, you know, it's hard to get a salmon anymore. Um, that, that's an interesting story and something that the people ought to understand, I think.
1: Well, I have a, a little anecdote that if I if you may, I could add in about caribou. And uh, the caribou up in the Northwest part of Alaska up by Kotzebue, where Paul works. And uh, it's the Western Arctic caribou herd. It's the biggest caribou herd in the state. Like, you know, it depends. Like some, as many as 500,000 animals in the past. And they, um, they migrate about, I think they're one of the farthest migrating animals, you know, mammals, land mammals on earth. So they- they walk like 400 miles north and they turn around and walk 400 miles south and they have to swim two giant rivers and cross, you know, three mountain ranges. And, uh, and they had traditional places where they would cross. And there's a, a you know, a group of uh, Alaska natives, um, inyapak we'd Call them Eskimos, maybe, and they live along this river, even though the river you think uh, Eskimos of as living in igloos and the glaciers or up uh, you know on the ice pack, but these guys don't live on the ice pack, they live in a forested river valley where this big caribou herd goes through twice a year in the spring and in the fall. And they have to swim this river, so there's like five villages that hunt caribou by boat basically, and um when they're swimming and they know these places where they have traditionally crossed, but the last few years have been so warm that um, I think the shrubs, and you can talk to people up there, like people who've been living their their whole lives and hunting and snow machining around in the country. And they will complain about how thick the brush is getting and the brush has got so thick in places that it's pushed the caribou out of their traditional migratory pathways. And they're not going to where they used to cross the rivers and now, but the people, some people don't think that it's the bushes pushing the caribou around. They think it's um, non-local hunters who are up in a different area. People who fly up from Anchorage to go hunt caribou and they're harassing the caribou. And so the locals want to want to point the finger at the non-locals. But really, it's these bushes that are pushing the caribou around. And because, uh, you know, caribou, they're, they're willing to change their paths. They wander. They wander around but um but the 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 shrub growth the bush growth the sh- willows the willows there are so bad like like Paul said, I've walked around the state quite a bit and um, the worst brush I've seen is down by Cordova on the coast where the alders are real thick and tall. But the second worst brush I've ever seen and nobody would ever believe me if I said this was up in the Brooks Range near the Kobuk River where the you know, caribou have those magnificent big antlers that are all like, you know they got the double shovels, the big bulls got crazy antlers and they, they don't wanna get all tangled up in thick brush. And so they're going to new places to, to migrate.
2: You know, that's a really good lead in Roman and and it's in, in truth, it's a food security issue. And, you know, um, I live, I live in Anchorage. I mean, I'm not, I love to hunt and hunting is a really vital part of who I am. And, and it's a connection with my son and with the the land and we take a caribou every year for meat, And it's a, it's a really important thing, but we're not going to starve. Um, you know, and, and, but, but, in a village situation, it's a much, much bigger issue, especially when you see the compounding effects of fish not showing up and caribou changing migratory patterns. And um, it, it really puts it into context, you know, even though um, <clears throat> the food is food is not available um, in in a village situation, you know, you might you might get one or two barges in the fall and that's it. It's going to show up before the before the ice freezes, the river freezes and you can't get food in so it's a it's a much much more pointed issue in those settings
3: yeah tom um you know i work up in kotzebue and i'd say like 95 percent of my patient population there is Nupiak or um as, as roman said eskimo people um alaska native indigenous people and uh during a lot of the year, I would say that, on average, at least once a day, unsolicited, a native elder will mention to me how much the climate is different than it used to be, and they'll usually say it in the context, like you said, of some some food source, some subsistent food source. Whether it's that the whales are different, different places are more dangerous to pursue, or that the time, the window of time when they can pursue seals in the spring is harder because the ice is going out much earlier or is more precarious. Or, um, the, you know, getting out on the ice for the she fish, which is one of the fish they pursue is, is a lot different. Um, and of course the, you know, the big one is, as Roman mentioned is the caribou, which is a huge factor. Like you said, Tom, that everybody relies on for their food. And, uh, you know, it, like I really do hear about unsolicited almost every single day working just as a medical provider. I'm not there to talk to them about their, their diet and their, and their animals, but, um. I I hear about it constantly.
0: Those are important stories to tell. I mean, I think, you know, when people hear the human aspect of it and and what it means for, you know, our traditions, our food sources, the wildlife we love, that's when they, you know, it it resonates with them a little bit more and and then they can kind of start to understand it or think about it. And it also piques their own interests. I've noticed where they'll look around a little bit more and go, hmm, is that thing that I've been noticing? I wonder what that's about, you know. So, uh, I I think that uh, you know we're get, we're getting near the time uh, that we have here today. But I wanted to give you all a last you know chance to to touch on anything you think we missed, and 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 thank you for for spending the time here. And, and tell you you know we're gonna keep trying to explore some of these these items and and some ways we might be able to continue these conversations and tell more of these stories and you all have been very helpful on that. Um, and so I appreciate it very much, but I'll, I'll let each of you, I'm just going to go around the dial here and we'll start with you Roman dial because we, we had, we're going to go around the dial, uh, and, and let you just kind of leave us with your parting shot here and, and, and would tell us the last thing you want to tell us today.
1: Yeah. The last thing I'd want to say, uh, today is that, um, things are changing and I, I they're changing rapidly. And, and there's a lot of people who, uh, and I was one of them who didn't think climate change was real for a long time. I, I thought, no, there's not, it's not. And then, and then I realized it is actually happening. Um, and, and I have come to the conclusion that it is, Something that we can that we've done. I, I know my grandmother didn't think we could pollute the air or the water, um, but now I think we're polluting the climate. And and then there's other people who think there's nothing we can do at this stage. But you know, the first rule of holes: if you find yourself in a hole, you got to stop digging. So um, we might not come up with a solution right away, but maybe we should stop digging. And that would be my last my last point.
0: Thanks, Truman.
1: Tom.
2: Boy. Um, I can't, I can't think of anything off the top of my head real as, as, uh, as profound as, as what Roman came up with, but you know, it's just, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting to see, to, to be able to have, to be able to interact with, uh, the collared population of animals that I work on, uh, every year and see, uh, real direct effects of, of weather patterns and, and winter, winter weather and summer weather on, uh, on body condition, body fat pregnancy rates, you know, and, uh, and to see those differences show up every year, uh, consistently is, is pretty striking. It really drives, it really drives home the, the importance of how weather patterns do influence, uh, wildlife populations. And, uh, both
3: at the individual and population level.
0: Thanks, Tom.
2: Paul.
3: Well, I mean that for me, the impetus to start talking to um, to Tom and Roman and others about this was, um, like Roman and you know, I was, I was like reluctant to fully accept that this was what was happening and what was causing all the things that I care about to change up here. And uh, I think it's really unfortunate that. You know the the elephant in the room is that there's this is a pretty political issue, and uh, that's really unfortunate that that's the case. It shouldn't be. It should just be an issue that we all care about, who care about wild places and wild animals, um, and and lots of other things. But that's what we're talking about specifically. And so, um, I guess my my take on it is just that you know. Well, like Tom said, there's not like a solution. We're probably not going to helicopter these sheep into a different range or, or you know, or, or fix things like that. So, you know, if, if people out there, you, you really care about the wild places and the wild animals, especially here in the Arctic, the thing to do is to help depoliticize the issue and talk to your representatives and tell them you care about it and, and just – Just, you know, that's where the, you know, we can do something as individuals, but I think really we need legislative change. And I think talking to our representatives and saying like, hey, we care about this and we're hunters and this is important to us is, is, uh, is the, is the next step.
0: Thanks, Paul. And, and, you know, that's what we're aiming to do really to tell these stories and, and to make sure they're not forgotten and, and to illuminate some of these changes and, you know, whether it be sheep or caribou or salmon, you know, I think we all know that we care enough about those things and and they deserve to be here. They, they belong on our landscapes and uh, we want them to be here forever. Right. I mean, hopefully, hopefully, as long as humanity exists, we have those critters. So uh, I appreciate all of you and, and what you're doing and, and the the insight you've brought to this and we'll look forward to talking more and and thinking on these subjects and figuring out ways we can use them effectively hopefully to 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 let others know and and help get things done that that help the issue so thank you all so much for for spending some time with us today and and we'll look forward to talking some more we are nwf outdoors